Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation, it's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. Here are your hosts, Tyler and Curtis. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler, and believe it or not, I was Finally able to track down Curtis and pry him away from bar exam prep for, oh, I don't know, an hour or so here. So he's rolling with me today as we bring you another mailbag edition of the podcast. So Curtis, how fun is your life right now when basically all you're doing is studying for the bar exam? Because that's pretty, that's pretty much all you're doing, right? Yeah, that's pretty much my life every day. Like eight hours a day? Or yeah, yeah, around there, yeah. Okay, so on a scale of 1 to 10 right now, how much do you hate your life right this second? I'd probably go with a 6. Now, if you ask me in a month, it'll probably be closer to a 10. It's uh, still uh, starting you know, only about a week in so far. So once I get a good month and a half in, I'll probably be a lot worse. Yeah, so it's the end of July, right? Yeah, it's at the end of July. Okay, so I, I think I asked you this a couple of weeks ago, like right after you graduated law school and you were kind of – entering the phase of studying for the for the bar but now that you are a little a little bit more into this is this worse than law school itself because we all know law school the reputation it has but is this actually worse so far i think it is because it's even during finals for law school you can somewhat cram for a couple classes you have four or five days to study for each exam or this time that you're memorizing what fit close to 15 topics all for a two-day exam yeah, that's tough. That's tough. And I mean, like, hey, no big deal. It's just your entire future at stake, right? I mean, exactly. That's all we're talking about here. No big deal at all. But sorry, I know that sucks, but you'll be done here before long and you're going to pass the bar exam. I got a million percent faith in you. No worries whatsoever there, at least on my part, maybe on your part, not so much for me. But for the next hour or so, let's just put that aside. Let's not worry about the bar exam, as difficult as that may be for you right now. But let's try to talk some Georgia football and maybe even a little Georgia baseball. And let's get it started here with our question of the day. Now, this is actually news from last week that we did. We actually did not get this question last week. We got it this week. So we're going to talk about it on today's show. So this question comes from Jim. And Jim is asking about Todd Munkin and his, I don't know, Curtis, did you ever see anything hard? Is this a new contract or just a bump in pay? I, I never saw anything about an extension. 
I never did either. It, that was a weird thing because most people were calling it extension, but you never saw new terms as in length announced more so just salary. Yeah, well, the way I saw it phrased was this is the third year of his initial three-year contract where he was initially, I think, supposed to make like $1.4 million and it got bumped up to $2 million. So I would love it if, and we'll get to that here in a second, if this was indeed a new contract extension that we we're just being really hush-hush on. I don't know why we would be so hush-hush on it, but as far as I know, that hasn't been made official. What has been made official is that at least for this one year, there's a pretty sizable bump in salary. So Jim asked Todd Munkin, $2 million a year. And I'm out of that inflection because it was just kind of like that in question mark. Is he really viable enough to be one of the highest paid assistant coaches in the country? It's not like our offense exactly set it on fire last year. They rode the defense's coattails to that national championship. Would we not be better off spending that money on other coaches trying to keep those guys around? All right, Kurt. So a couple different layers there. It's an interesting question. So Todd Munkin, $2 million a year, at least for this next year, maybe an extension, maybe not. At the very least, a, a sizable raise here. What is your take on that? Is he viable enough to be one of the highest paid coaches, not just on our staff, but in the entire country? Last year, we don't have the numbers for all the assistant coaches this year. Last year, there were only three assistant coaches in the country that made more than or that made two million dollars or more. There was only one offensive coordinator, it was Tony Elliott from Clemson. Tony Elliott is now a head coach. So, as far as we know right now, he's the highest paid offensive coordinator in all of America. So, how do you feel about that? Well, first off, I want to start with the comment about keeping other coaches around. And from all the coaches that have left, especially the last year or two, I don't know if you can actually name a single coach who's left strictly for money reasons because right now. Georgia pays their assistant coaches pretty well. So I feel like if so far if the coaches have left, it really hasn't had anything to do with pay. So I think that's my first response. And second of all, while our offense wasn't, you know, we weren't Alabama and putting up some of those numbers. The fact is when you looked at what we did, when you talk about um, the consistency, yards per play, explosiveness, we were high in a lot of these categories. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think the biggest thing is, Dealing with all the injuries, I mean, we went from having a pat. We were wanting to be a pass happy offense with JT Daniels, then uh, inserting uh, Stetson Bennett. We were able to completely shift our offensive identity and still not, for the most part, miss a beat. In the fact that our yeah, while our defense was good and we were able to ride their coattails, the offense never cost us a game. Um, and you think back to, I mean, even Jim, uh, think back to the national championship. Alabama scores, and we were we could have easily been in trouble. But yet we then started passing the ball and we, you know, we got aggressive and changed the game by scoring, scoring those two touchdowns. And the fact is, when you think back to what we had with Jim Chaney or James Coley, I don't know if we would have had the offensive mind that could have kind of pivoted and made the corrections we needed that late in the game to win us a game. Yeah, I I agree on all counts there, man. I agree with everything you said. I I want to start by saying this, kind of just building off what you were saying there, Curtis. And this is with all due respect. I really do not mean this as disrespect towards Jim or anyone else who, I guess, subscribes to this notion. But are we still really subscribing to this fallacy that our offense was not one of the top offenses in the country last year? Like, Are people still holding on to that? Is that still a thing, Curtis? Like, people in your life that you know that you interact with, do you still hear that from, from other Georgia fans out there? I think you do, and I think I, – I mean, even I have – question our offense but I don't think I've ever questioned we are putting up points and converting but I think people look and just don't see you know where Bryce Young's putting up three four hundred yards a game and you have we people just focus on the statistics more than well they're the focusing on like big the picture old school, 
very rudimentary statistics that I don't really put all that much stock into because they don't really tell you anything. We have advanced stats now that give you far more insight into how an offense is performing. And if you look at those advanced stats, the ones that I put far more stock in, as you were saying, Curtis, we were top five in the country in basically every single one that I care about. We were fourth nationally in yards per play. And I'm going to use Bama. I've done this before. I'm going to do it again because Bama is the only one that we always talk about, right? Or at least people in the Georgia stratosphere or the national media, they always want to compare us to, to Alabama. You're going to the national championship game. It was the elite Georgia defense versus Bryce Young, this high-powered Bama offense. So let's let's look at that. Let's compare the two. We were fourth nationally in yards per play last year. Bama, really good. They were 16th nationally. We were third nationally in points per play. I know like you suckers, people look up how many points you actually score, like your points per game. I look far more closely at points per play because what that does is it takes tempo out of the equation. The fact is some offenses just run with a higher pace and they run more plays. And therefore, if you run more plays, you're going to score more points, right? It's that simple. So what I like to look at is how many points are you scoring per play? All right, because that accounts for tempo. We were third nationally in points per play last year. Alabama, again, very good. They were 12th nationally. We were also, this is a I, this is a stat that I love that I don't really hear many people talk much about, but it's punts per offensive score. So to me, this is how efficient your offense is. a great measure of offensive efficiency. We were fifth nationally in punts per offensive score last year. Bama, really good. Slightly behind us there, number six. And if you look at Bill Connolly's S&P Plus numbers, which is really kind of taking all these things in totality, we were second nationally in S&P Plus offense. Bama, again, really good, but not as good as us, number four. And as you were saying, Curse, we did all of that. All of that production came with our starting quarterback in JT Daniels going out for good after week four, missed all of week two. Didn't play the entire game in week four. Then he was out the rest of the year. Uh, our best offensive lineman in Tate Ratledge went out in week one. We had a mass unit at wide receiver all year, and that includes our top receiver, one of the best receivers in the country, and George Pickens, who was a high second-round draft pick, but basically not playing all year, not really being a factor all year. Our projected starter at tight end in Darnell Washington missed the first month plus. It was never really 100%. Our leading returning wide receiver was hurt all year pretty much, and Kiaris Jackson was not really 100% healthy. And then our best weapon all year long was a true freshman tight end. So we put up that kind of production under that context. And I, you're totally right, Curtis. I think the difference was that we just didn't put up like video game passing numbers. And we only scored 38.8 points per game rather than maybe like 45 like Ohio State did. But to me, it's all context. If we ran tempo rather than complementary pace to our defense, and also we, if we didn't take our foot off the gas in the second half, because – Let's be real. We were just pantsing everyone that we played. I think the perception would be very different in this offense, but I think it, it persists. The, the general view of this offense, whether it's in the Georgia fan base or from outside of the Georgia fan base, is that our offense was good enough, but it was just kind of being carried along by the defense. And I just don't subscribe to that because I watched every game last year. I've gone back and watched game after game after game during the offseason. I look at these advanced numbers. And we were as good as just about anybody not named Ohio State in all these advanced statistic measures last year. We really were. We were that good. So who gets credit for that, Curtis? I, I think – I mean, we have really good players. Don't get me wrong. But I think more than anything, Todd Munkin is the mastermind behind all this. Again, especially consider all the issues that he had to deal with last year offensively. We, we basically had to change the structure of our offense and what we wanted to do and how we wanted to go about being productive – once JT went out, and then you insert Stetson Bennett, who, God bless the guy, had basically no reps whatsoever with the number one offense prior to being stuck in there as the, as the starting quarterback against uh, UAB in week two. 
And we were still able to be as productive as we were and win national championships. So if you're asking the question, is he valuable enough to be one of the highest paid assistant coaches in the country? I guess I would have to ask how much value you put on a national championship. Because Curtis, I'm going to be honest with you. I know our defense was fantastic last year. I don't think we win the national championship without Todd Monkey. Is that going too far? I don't think it is because, I mean, realistically, like we said, the difference, I mean, as good as our defense was, if the offense doesn't score those last two touchdowns, the game's over. Yeah, I mean, Curse, if James Coley is our offensive coordinator last year, do we win the national championship? No, no question. We don't. Our defense was, still would have been awesome. We still would have shut a lot of teams out. We would have held teams to basically nothing on the ground. We would have done all those things, but would we have beaten Alabama in the national championship game? I don't think so. The Alabama defense was fantastic. I, I just no, don't you think, you think back to that. You think back to the SEC championship where we played LSU. I mean, LSU, yeah, LSU put a lot of points on our defense, but the offense didn't help us. And the fact is, LSU had general generational offense, so you had to score. And our defense gave our offense chances in that first half against LSU. Well, back in 2019. I mean, I know LSU always put some points up up on us, but we gave our offense chances to stay in the game. Our offense just simply could not do it. You're exactly right. So, I mean, I, I don't. I don't see how Todd Munkin is not worth it. I mean, two million, of course. Like if you're if you're a big boy in college football, like we want to be, like I think that we are. If you want to be one of those elite programs, you want to be a power player. You better be paying your assistant co- coaches that help you win national championships. You better be paying them two million dollars a year. That's how it works. If not, Todd Munkin's leaving, and then then where are we? Hopefully, I trust Kirby almost implicitly in hiring assistant coaches. I think he's done a fantastic job there. But Todd Munkin was a considerable part of our success last year. I never want to talk about the defense. The defense deserves all that credit. They are fantastic. But it's not like the offense was just garbage that, that as some people are saying, was just a long for the ride there. I don't, I just don't subscribe to that notion. I think the offense was, was elite. And I, I've said that many times this off season and I'll continue to say that. So I'm blue in the face, probably until the 2022 season kicks off and we have an even better offense, but I keep saying it. I feel like I keep, have to keep saying it. Because I don't think people are hearing me when I'm saying that. So, uh, yeah, I know. I sound like a broken record when it comes to this offense last year. But I honestly just think it's really lazy for people to sit here and say that offense was not a major part of why we won a national championship last year. Because with all due respect, essentially every number out there says you are flat wrong, if you believe that. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. 
All right, let's move on to the next question here. All right, this is from our good friend Cliff. Thank you, Cliff, as always, my friend. And Cliff is asking about the really the SEC spring meetings that were taking place this week. And obviously the big conversation there outside of Jimbo and Saban were the potential scheduling changes that we're going to see here the next, next couple of years as the SEC expands with Oklahoma and Texas coming probably looks like now uh, 2025, 2024, one of those two years. So Cliff asks, with the scheduling changes that are, are inevitably going to happen, what rivalries do you feel like are most important for Georgia to keep intact? That's an interesting one, Curtis. We are this, I don't want to say a rare team, but I think we have maybe more rivals, like true rivals, than anyone in the SEC does. And so even if you're talking about a, a 6-3 format where you go to a nine-game conference schedule and you only have three permanent opponents – that's still going to leave us without playing some of what I believe are, are like legitimate rivals. So if you're looking at our rivals, Kurt, I think you can easily say we have five or six of them. Which are the most important ones? Let's say we're going to the 6-3 format, because I think that's probably most likely to happen here. Who are the three most important rivals to keep on our schedule? Um, I probably, of course, you have to start with uh, Florida. Yeah, 100%. Um, and then outside that, my next one realistically probably is Auburn. Yeah, and see that one, I, you're right. I think you're right there. I just, I'll be honest with you, Curtis. I know you, you are right there. I think most people would say Auburn because it is the Deep South's oldest rivalry. And I said last week that I think rivalries matter in college football and you can't ignore that. And I, I, I truly do believe that. So I'm totally okay with us continuing to play Auburn. But for me personally, I don't have as strong of feelings towards Auburn as I do Tennessee. You know what I mean? Like, I view Tennessee, and I know that that's not as long-standing of a rivalry. It's really not, not not really since we went to like divisions based in the SEC back in '92. So I understand that it is not as traditional of a rival. But in my college football lifetime, we've always played Tennessee, and Tennessee. When I was growing up in college football in the '90s, Tennessee owned us, and it hurts me to say that. I mean, they owned us just about as much as Florida did in the '90s, and that. That really hurts to say. Now, thank God we flipped the script on both those programs. But growing up, I had far more hatred for Tennessee than I did for Auburn. And that's a personal thing. That's the cool thing about rivalries, Curtis, right? It's like different people based on different experiences, your age, your geographical location. Are you like right there in Columbus, Georgia, right next to Auburn? Are you up in the North Georgia mountains, like right across from Chattanooga? Depends on where you are. And I I think you, you can have different answers to this. So personally, Florida, for sure. I'm with you on that 100%. That, that, that is the 100% must for me and my personal feelings. Like, we have to play that game. I'm, I don't like Auburn, and I would, I'm cool with continuing to play Auburn. And, again, I do like rivalries. I think they're really important. I know it's important to a lot of people, so I'm totally fine with that. But personally, like, from just my own personal standpoint, I would, I would lean towards rather playing Tennessee, but that's just me. I know that's not going to happen. It's going to be Florida, Auburn. I think that's pretty obvious. It's going to be those two teams. That's not really a debatable right now. So I think it comes down to who's that third team, Curtis, Florida, Auburn, and then who? See, the thing is I, what you're seeing floated around a lot is someone I actually doesn't bring me any excitement, but that's South Carolina. Right. Yeah. Yeah, South Carolina is probably – I mean, that's what you – like. Again, we haven't seen anything official official, at least as far as that I know. Maybe we will later today. But it's speculated right now it's going to be South Carolina. And that probably makes sense because you have to think about it, Curtis. We have all these rivalries. South Carolina, they don't – they really don't, you know. Like we are – I've said this many times. 
we don't really view South Carolina in that way as like a top rival, but South Carolina views us that way. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We are the, outside of Clemson. We are their number one rival anywhere. And, and that's obviously in the SEC too. So I think from that standpoint, you've got to give South Carolina who they view as their top rival in the SEC because they don't really have any natural rivals. So I think it's almost certainly going to be South Carolina. Like I said, I would personally prefer it to be Tennessee because I have far more hatred for them. And uh, I, I honestly, I, I think that, I mean, I know the South Carolina fan base cares about football. I know they, they really do, but not on the level of Tennessee, in my opinion. And I, I, I just think that's, a, I think Georgia Tennessee is a really good rivalry. I, think, I know we've dominated just, just like we basically dominated every rivalry in the, in the past decade plus or so. So, I mean, that's that, but I, I would prefer to play Tennessee. Again, that goes back to when I was growing up and that's just me. I know that's not a lot of people. The, I think another question, Curtis, this has not related to the SEC, or not, not directly related to the SEC in our scheduling format. But let's say we go to a nine-game schedule, and you have to play an extra conference game. And we still we are still one of those teams that has this in-state non-conference rival that we play every single year in Georgia Tech. If we do go to nine, how, do, how would you feel about dropping Georgia Tech? Is that something you feel like we have – a game that we have to continue to play? You know, this is an interesting point, but I think it would actually benefit us to keep it because when you go to a nine-game schedule, the one thing that is going to be affected is the out-of-conference. And as much as we want to play Power 5 teams every single time, realistically, you're going to have to put a cupcake or two in there because we need to get guys healthy. We need to get younger guys' experience. And for the foreseeable future, Tech fits that cupcake category. But the, the, so they, you're right. They fit the category, but you still get credit for playing a power five non-conference opponent. Exactly. And that's why I think it's beneficial. Like, I mean, maybe things change and they improve. I just don't see that happening as long as crazy Jeff is there. Um, but so they fit that where it's still technically a power five team, but yet it's a chance to get guys healthy and it still kind of serves a, a need or they have a use. I totally get that. I, I, I see where you're coming from there. And I'm actually okay with it, I think. Now, here's my concern. Again, we talked about this a little bit last week. If you go to a nine-game conference schedule and you keep Tech, that means you got two slots left, right? That's 10 games right there in a 12-game schedule. I've always been a huge fan of these non-conference Power 5 matchups against teams like – I know Oklahoma's getting ready to come to the SEC, but we had Oklahoma scheduled against Florida State, um, against Arizona State, against Colorado in the past, against Notre Dame in the past. I've been a huge fan of those games. I enjoy going to those games. I enjoy seeing different matchups. I think it's a lot of fun. And I, I, th- I think sometimes we lose sight of that. Like This is an entertainment product. I think those matchups are entertaining. They're far more entertaining than playing Southeast Louisiana, which I know I think it was Jimbo Fisher who was stumping for keeping those games. And I understand why there's a need to keep those games, those pay games, because that funds those entire athletic departments and you – kind of keep football alive on that level. And I, I get that. I understand that and the economics of that. But selfishly as a fan, those games are boring as hell, Curtis. Like I love going to Sanford Stadium, but I have a hard time getting motivated to go sit in Sanford Stadium at noon when it's 97 degrees scalding your face to watch us play a team like Charleston Southern. Like don't you feel that way to at least uh, to some degree, Kurt? Oh, yeah, I think it's – easy to feel that way and i think but i think that's why maybe keeping tech serves it where they're almost our cupcake and could still allow us to go play some other yeah. big power five teams 
That's fair. And I, I'm cool with that. So that, that's how that, that would be the perfect setup for me. Because I'm not going to lie. I like beating Tech. I hate Georgia Tech. And it's and I know they haven't been relevant. I'm not trying to give them relevance here. But it's just fun to beat them. Because when they do beat us every you know 10 years or so, they never let you hear the end of that. So I enjoy beating the holy hell of them. Like we have the average of 45 points over the last two years combined. Uh, or, yeah, on average, I should say. So I love that. I, I, I don't want to stop doing that. That's a lot of fun for me. But I also am fearful of like losing out on some of those other non-conference matchups that I do like to see. So if we would go with a, a nine-game SEC schedule, playing Tech, have one of those bye games where you're playing a Charleston Southern or an Austin P or something like that, whoever, and then you have a, another Power 5 non-conference game, that would be ideal for me. That's perfect for me. And I know that's 11 Power 5 games. And I know, I know the argument would be you're putting yourself at a disadvantage just not many other teams are going to be doing that. And I understand that. That's, I mean, I, 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 under, I get that. I mean, I know that that is something that you have to consider. I do think once we do expand the playoffs, which obviously is not going to happen as early as I, I thought it would, and we all thought it might, it's probably like 2024, 2025 when that contract runs up. But when we do expand the playoffs, and I think that's an inevitability here at some point, I think that's not going to be as much of a problem. I really don't. So hopefully that's kind of how it plays out. And ideally that's how I would love to see it play out. All right, Kurt, let's move on here. Now, uh, this question comes from Brian. Brian asks, with the remainder of the 2022 football signing class making their way to campus this week, which one of those players do you think will make the biggest impact on the 2022 team? Hmm. So, Kurt, everybody's on campus now as far as I know from that 2022 class, another top three class. We haven't seen any of these guys yet. We saw the guys who were here for spring, the early enrollees. We saw them a little bit at G-Day. These other guys who just, well, I guess they technically enroll for summer classes. They just got to campus. They're now moved in a whole nine yards, all that stuff. We haven't seen as much from them at this level. So of those players, Kurt, which one do you think will have the biggest impact next season? You know, I think I'm going to go with Marvin Jones Jr. And I think it's oh, just because, so fun, of, dude. because of position. Yeah. Well, do you, I, I agree. So I think when you're looking at this question, the first thing you have to ask yourself is where is there opportunity for like legitimate playing time? Mm-hmm. I think you're right. Outside linebacker, we do not have a ton of quality depth there. We have, I like who we've got in the front lines there, obviously with Nolan Smith and Robert Beal. I think Chaz Chambers can be a good player for us. And Jay Sherman, I think he can be a guy that can do some things as well. But that's essentially it at that position. So that's certainly a, a place where you can find some opportunity for early playing time. I think cornerback really anywhere in the defensive backfield, I think is going to be a place where you can find some opportunity. Maybe defensive line. I always hesitate with defensive line because playing in the trenches, the SEC, that's a man's game. And when you're fresh out of high school, it's rare that you can come in and be an impact player. We've seen it a couple of times. Like, you know, we saw it with Jalen Carter a couple of years ago, but even he was like um, a guy who, who was a spot player. He didn't play a significant number of downs for us. But Marvin Jones Jr., yeah, that's the first one I had on my list. Opportunities there. Do you think he's talented enough to truly come in and take snaps away from people? I think the biggest thing for him is I, I, I don't know if he's strong enough. Um, he's got a very slender flame or slender frame from what I can tell. Um, and yeah. I think that's the one spot he's going to really have to improve to get that more um, early contribution. Yeah, I think he's going to have every chance to not start, of course, but – to be a guy that figures into the rotation. I would feel a lot more confident saying that if he was here as an early enrollee, I would really have felt great about that because that is a position of need for us right now. And he was the, he was the big fish that we got in this class at that position. 
I think he absolutely has the talent, you know, the skill set to be able to go out there and rush the passer and make some plays for us. But you're right, Curtis, it's just the body getting stronger, getting a little bigger, being able to hold up there on, not, not always on the streamers, but there are certain packages, certain looks, certain fronts where he's going to be playing essentially as a four-man front there on the line of scrimmage. Um, he, he won't have his hand down on the, on the ground a ton, but I, I obviously think it would behoove him to get bigger, stronger. And he has, I mean, two months, really. He has two months before fall camp starts to, to do that, and he'll be with a professional strength and conditioning program really for the first time. So hopefully you can see that happen here over the next couple of months, but that would be my big concern there. But he's certainly one to watch in this 2022 class. I got a couple more here. I think I mentioned cornerback as a spot where there's going to be opportunity for playing time for these young players. We had Dan Everett here on campus as an early enrollee. We got two more guys that came in this week in Jaheim Singletary and Julio Humphrey. I think either one of those guys could make an impact. I would still go with Marvin Jones Jr. ahead of those two guys, Curtis, because we signed one hell of a DB recruiting class. So, there's more competition within their own class for guys like Singletary and Humphrey than there is for Marvin Jones Jr. So I think I would still lean his way. I think you're right there. But those guys certainly should be in the thick of this conversation. And along the defensive line, what about a guy like Christian Miller, Curtis? Could you see Christian Miller coming in with some of the, the, the departures we've had on the defensive line from last year? Could he be a guy, the rare player, comes in as a true freshman and contributes along the defensive line? I think he potentially could. I think it's because of his position, because I don't think he's a straight nose tackle, um, which I oh, think no. is going to be the hard, hardest position to come in and it, be, have an impact as a freshman. Yeah, that's not what that guy does. He's more of a three-tech in the vein of a Jalen Carter. He's that athleticism, that explosiveness off the line of scrimmage. I think he could work his way into some playing time. I know we have some other players. We know we've got Zion Logue. Uh, we got Warren Brinson. I thought he did some good things at G-Day. we got plenty, a Tyrion Ingram Dawkins, plenty of options there. But Christian Miller is a really, really talented player. I, I think he's going to be a big-time player for us on the defensive line, and that potentially could be as early as this year. But, yes, I'll go back to what you said there, Curtis. I will, I will go Marvin Jones Jr., and then um, outside of that, probably the cornerbacks, either Singletary or Humphrey. I think it's easier to come in and earn playing time as a true freshman at cornerback than it is on the defensive line where you're just going against grown-ass men in the SEC. All right, another team question here real quick, Curtis. This is from Carter. Appreciate the question, man. Carter asked, does Tramel Walthour make a big jump this year? Now, Curtis, we did not see anything from him at G-Day. He was out for that spring scrimmage. But what do you kind of foresee as the future of Tramel Walthour going into 2022? I think my biggest thing is, is if not now, when? Um, is yeah. almost my mindset when it comes to him. I mean, I know that can't always be the mindset. Let's look at what uh, – you know, Robert Beal has done, um, and he was, you know, someone that talked about transferring. So I don't want to go ahead and write him off, but I, he definitely, this is, he's getting to the point though, especially because we've had such a good D line class, you know, go pro last year. Now guys are seeing us. So I think we're starting to reap some of the benefits recruiting wise that if you don't watch out, it is easy to get passed up now. I don't know what to make a Walthour this year. He did a really good job for us as the backup to, Javon Walker at the five tech last year. But Curtis, when you here's my thing with Walthour. When you watched him play, did he ever flash to you? No, it like you knew he was in there because like there was no flash, but it wasn't like a huge drop off. But like you said, there just there wasn't anything that made you think like, oh wow, he's in, something's gonna happen. Yeah, I, I that's how I feel about Walthour. I'm not sitting here trashing the guy. I'm not saying he's garbage. That's not all what I'm saying. He did a really nice, solid job for us backing up Walker last year. 
we're going to need him this year. We lost a lot along the defensive line. We do not have much returning experience. He is one of those guys that at least does have some returning experience. But I'm just not sure I ever saw anything from last from him last year that screamed to me that he had a ce- more to his ceiling that he hasn't really attained it. Can he improve and get better? Sure, but I think marginally. I don't think he has this extraordinarily high ceiling. In fact, the guy who flashed to me, I know it was a small sample size, but I think that speaks to how much talent this guy has. The guy that flashed to me at G-Day was Tyrion Ingram Dawkins, Curtis. I mean, to me, he got he got a lot of run at G-Day playing that five-tech, largely because Walthour is not in there. I think Walthour getting injured towards the end of, of spring practice allowed a guy like Tyrion Ingram Dawkins to get more reps, to get more comfortable, to show the coaches what he could do, and to earn more trust, and generally speaking, earn more playing time. He's the guy with the ceiling. It's to me, it's not really Walthour. Walthour can play a role. He can come in there and, and eat up snaps for us and spell guys. I just don't think, honestly, Curtis, I don't think he should be a starter. Like I know, I know that he's kind of you would think he's the heir apparent because he was the backup to Trayvon Walker last year, but we've got to have better options than that. Because if Tramel Walthour has to play Trevon Walker level snaps at the five tech for us, I think that's a major drop off. I think that's a major drop off. He's a good player. He ain't he ain't first round type talent. He's just not. And maybe we don't have that guy on our roster. That's fine. But I think the difference in talent between Jamel Walthour and Trayvon Walker and Tyrion Dawkins and Trayvon Walker is far larger. Is far larger. I think it's far larger there. So I um I I think he'll be a good player. I think he'll take some moderate steps forward if he can stay healthy. But I by the time the end of the season's over, Curtis, I'll just say this: he might start the year at that spot just because he's got the experience and he's the upperclassman. By the time the season ends, I do not think he'll be our starter at five at the five tech. That's just me. I think it's going to be Ingram Dawkins from what I saw. I know that's very small sample size and I'm going on a limb there, but based off what I saw and what Ingram Dawkins showed me in that one small setting, I think he's going to be the guy by the time the season's over. I really do. You're a podcast listener and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Okay, we are back. And our next question, Curtis, is all about the Diamond Dogs. We're going to move away from football momentarily and talk a little NCAA baseball tournament, which opens this weekend. The dogs play VCU on Friday in Chapel Hill. Unfortunately, as most of you know, we ended this season very poorly, kind of fizzled out down the stretch, lost in the first round, the first game of the SEC tournament as a six seed. So we were not able to capture a hosting bid for a regional tournament, which most for most of the season I don't want to say we were a lock. Obviously, we were not a lock because we did not end up hosting a regional, but we were in extraordinarily good position for most of the season. For a large portion of the season, it was a matter of 
are we going to be a top eight national seed rather than are we going to host a regional? But we fell short and we fell into the Chapel Hill Regional where we are going to be in a little mini four-game tournament with North Carolina, VCU, and Hofstra. And again, we are set to open play Friday night at 9 p.m. against VCU in the first game, our first game of the Chapel Hill Regional. And Sam is a big Georgia baseball guy. We have a lot of good conversations about Georgia baseball on social media. So it's always fun to to hear what Sam has to say about the Diamond Dogs. And this time around, Sam has a question about the prospects of us coming out of this regional in Chapel Hill. So Curtis, here is Sam's specific question. What is your honest prediction on how the Diamond Dogs will fare in Chapel Hill? Um, Realistically, I see us winning one game. I think if if we win a game right now, I think Jonathan Cannon going, I mean, VCU is a hot team right now, but him him pitching that first game Friday night, I think realistically is probably our only shot at getting a win that whole regional. What do you make of the decision to have Cannon start that first game and not maybe save him for potentially North Carolina if we can get by VCU without him? I think it just shows how little faith we have in anyone else. I mean, even um, Liam Sullivan has been up and down a lot this year, barely has struggled to go. Yeah, I mean, he has consistently struggled to ever go five innings. Um, Yeah, he's been more down than up this year. I know he was dealing with an injury early in the year, and I get all that, but he's been like pretty much everybody except for Cannon, highly inconsistent. Everyone besides Cannon and Jack Gowan been highly inconsistent for us. I'm okay with starting. Actually, I think we had to start Cannon against VCU because I think it's critical, Curtis, to stay out of the loser's bracket in this regional because when you're in a setting like this, you're in this kind of regional four-team tournament. That's really what a regional is. It's it's a mini four-team tournament. Pitching depth assumes more importance when you're when you're in a situation like that. And if we get into the loser's bracket right off the bat by virtue of losing to VCU, I think we have zero chance to win this turn to win the regional and get out of it. I think we have zero chance. I, I, it's just that it's that simple to me. So I think throwing Ken against VCU is something that we simply had to do. Because if you don't stay alive now, I know it's double elimination, but like again, if we lose to VCU and and we go to the loser's bracket, we just don't have the pitching depth to make it out. We just simply do not. So I think it's really important to stay out of the loser's bracket, and that's why I think throwing Cannon against VCU in game one and not saving him potentially for a, a Saturday matchup against North Carolina in the winner's bracket, I think that's the right decision. I really do. Now, I will say, Curtis, getting a spot in the Chapel Hill Regional, I think there were worse places we could have ended up. How do you feel about this regional and its strength in general? Um, it seems that VCU is a hot team and so is Carolina right now, but is it one of the more consistent teams that's played so far this year? No. Yeah. It's all about who's, I mean, right now that's, that's what concerns me is there are two teams that are hot. And as you said, UNC and VCU, but I would also argue, yeah, UNC is really hot right now. And that does matter. You can't discount that, but throughout the totality of this season, North Carolina is not a dominant host team. I mean, they got, Really hot late. They won the ACC tournament, which is a good baseball conference. But if you look at the entire year, they only had the seventh best conference record in the ACC. They were middle of the pack in the ACC, just kind of like we were like middle of the pack in, in the SEC. We were the sixth seed. They were 15 and 15 in ACC play. We were 16 and 14 in SEC play. Throughout the entire season, we were very, very similar teams. They just got really hot at the right time. Now, hopefully, they were just hot in the ACC tournament, and that kind of cools off as you go into regional play. You can't count on that. 
but hopefully that's the case. But if you look at it the entire year, North Carolina was not really a considerably better team than we were all season long. They were not. So I think there were more dangerous regionals that we could have ended up in. I think this is a winnable regional for us. Now, I'm not saying I'm predicting us to win this region. I'm just saying that this is one that is more winnable than honestly I thought that we were going to be in when once we flamed out in the SEC tournament in that first game. So, yeah, I, I think this is something that we could potentially win. Again, I think it comes back to Friday. If we lose that game, that first game against VCU, I just don't see any path getting out of the regional. If we throw Cannon and lose, if we waste John Cannon and lose that game, it's just simply not happening. It's not happening. But if we win that game and we play North Carolina on Saturday in that winner's bracket, it's going to be Liam Sullivan. As we talked about, Curtis, I don't have a ton of faith in Liam Sullivan right now. He'll have to give us the start of his life. But if he does that, hmm, we might have a chance. We might have a chance. Because then on Sunday, it's going to be a bullpen game, Curtis. And we, we talked about our bullpen throughout the season and how little of a faith that we have in this pin right now. I think it's the, I've said a couple of times, it's the worst I've ever seen in my life. And I'm not really exaggerating. I'm, I'm sure there's been something worse. But in my lifetime, watching Georgia baseball, watching Braves baseball, this is the worst bullpen I've ever seen. It, it really is. So it's going to be a bullpen game. But I think the ideal scenario here, Curtis, like if we're going to win this regional, I think this is the scenario. We have to have an awesome start from John Cannon. Ideally, the bats come alive and we just shell shot VCU and we can take Cannon out after like maybe six innings and still get out of that, that first game on Friday with a win. Then Liam Sullivan goes the distance or gives us seven, eight strong innings, which highly unlikely, as you said, it's hard for him to get out of the fifth inning right now. But if he can do that, then we go into Sunday and it's probably, it'll be a bullpen game. Then you have... You have Jaden Woods, you have Jack Gowan, who've been our, our two best pitchers in, in the pen. I mean, Woods has been – he's been struggling, but he's still got talent. Gowan's been great for us all year. You've got those two, and you've got maybe a couple things you can throw John Cannon if he only goes five or six in the first game. Then maybe, maybe we can get out of there. But I, I will admit, man, that, that's a lot of ifs right now, and we're going to have to rely on our, our – we only have two remaining starting pitchers. Like we have John Cannon, Liam Soldom. Everyone else is out for the year. And we're going to have to rely on them to be at their absolute 100% best. They cannot have so-so stuff. Can't have any of that crap. They have to have the goods. They have to because our pin is that bad. And, of course, we're going to need the bats come out swinging, give us some breathing room there. And if all those things happen, then, yeah, Curtis, we can win this regional. But at this stage, Kurt, going into the regional, on a scale of 1 to 10, what, what chances do you give us to win this regional? Maybe a 3. That's that was what I was gonna say. Maybe a three. It's not impossible, but certainly not likely. I just you're right. North Carolina's hot. Our bullpen is atrocious. We have two starting pitchers. Bats have been up and down lately. I I would be lying to you if I had if I said I had a lot of confidence. But hey, man, I'm excited for it. Hey, we at least got some posters in baseball. We won the postseason last year. We got a puncher's chance. Let's see what happens if we play the way we can play. Then yeah, we can win this. But we haven't really been playing like that and. A month plus now so i'm not super confident but hey man i'm gonna be i'm gonna be rooting for him like crazy no doubt about it all right kurt one final question here let's end this on a on a fun one real quick this one comes from philip i'm sure all of you saw the social media post earlier this week with recruits rocking the all-white uniforms complete with all-white helmet going with the iced out look and that's exactly what Philip asked. He says, what's your take on all on the all-white uniforms making waves on social media? Do you think we will actually wear them? 
First off, Curtis, what do you think of those uniforms? You know, I actually liked it. Um, I thought it was a good switch. Um, the only thing I didn't like was the stripe on the middle of the helmet, the silver on it. I think if you had stuck with maybe red and black or something, I just didn't really like the silver because I don't think it accentuates anything when it's an all-white helmet. But overall, I really liked it. And then do we ever wear it? I don't know. I, you know, I brought that up to you talking about how people were complaining. But I said, realistically, is there even a guarantee we wear them? Because how many times have recruits taken pictures of in all these different uniform combos that we have still yet to this day never to wear? Well, the all white, the all the ice look, that's just this year's new unique look for recruits to come in and wear. Last year it was the all red. Remember that, Curtis? It was this time well, last they, year it was well, all red. You saw all white um, jersey and pants combo, but this is the first time we've ever seen the helmet. Yeah. Yeah, we've seen the all white. We've seen the ice look, or I guess the semi-ice look. It's the first time we've seen the helmet. We've seen the all red look. We've seen the all black look. We've seen the, the black jersey, red pants. We've seen all sorts of different combinations there. I, Curtis, I mean, I'm not getting my hopes up about us wearing these. I think you're right here because, Curtis, how many times did we wear an alternate uniform last year? Zero. 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 We have worn, in Kirby Smart's tenure here in Athens, since 2016, we have, by my my count, I could be wrong. Someone correct me if I'm wrong here. But by my count, we have worn alternate uniforms four times. We wore them once in 2000. We wore a black jersey once in 2016, if I remember correctly. Yep. I don't think we wore them in 17, 18, or 19. In 2020, we honored the 1980 National Championship team with red pants on the road to open the season against Arkansas. And we also had a black jersey we wore once in the regular season against Mississippi State. We wore those black jerseys again in the Peach Bowl against Cincinnati. So, Kirk, can you think of any other times? I think that's the four I can think of at the top of my head. Those are the only times, yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, I think that's the only time we've worn alternate uniforms. And again, last year, did not wear any alternate uniform. I just, I'm not holding my breath. I'm not saying it's impossible because we have done it, but we just haven't done it with any sort of consistency. And like, you know, even 2020, we wore three, we wore three alternate uniforms in 2020. But those are all related to, or at least the red pants were a 1980 thing. And I think the black ones might've also been 1980 thing too. I can't remember. I know that the red pants were specifically for like to honor the 1980 national championship team. I'm just not holding my breath here. I did. I didn't hate them. I, I, I wasn't gushing over them. I do think the helmet was the one part where I, I wasn't necessarily feeling, feeling it. You know what I mean? I think yeah. you're right. The, the three stripes, maybe if it was a one single red stripe, maybe, but I don't look, I didn't mind. Like, Again, like if we just wore that one time, just as a switch up, I'd be I'd be totally cool with that. Now, what I would really want, I love the white jerseys, red pants. I think that's a fantastic. Yeah, I would love look. if we actually made that switch. Yeah, I, I would be look. I look. I love our current road uniforms. I think our current road uniforms are some of the best in college football. I love the the white jersey, and I know they're supposed to be silver britches, but they're gray pants. I think that's a great look. I would like for us to just come out and say, and not, don't use it as a special thing, but just come out and say every year. We're going to wear red pants on the road one time. One time. That's all I'm asking. One time on the road. I think, it's, I think it's the best look that we have, the white on red. I think it's an amazing look. And I would like for us to wear black jerseys. I mean, if not every year, you know, every other year or so. Like, just don't make it so infrequent. Just wear them. That's the thing is, like, when you only wear them once in a while, then the teams that you're playing are saying, oh, they're, they're trying to use fake juice. They're, they're trying to get up for us. Well, you can guard against that by just saying we're going to do this on a yearly basis. One black jersey, one red pants, or one white pants look, whatever it is. I'm, I think that's the way I would approach this. 
But again, Kirby is king, and Kirby has clearly shown no interest in wearing alternate uniforms with any sort of consistency. So I don't see that happening. I wish it would, but I don't matter. And more than anything, right now, it seems like this is just a recruiting inducement, which on some level, I don't really quite get because you have these recruits take all these pictures. They'd have the photo ops with all these cool looks, but they have to also realize they're never actually going to get to wear them in a real game if they do choose to come to Georgia. It's basically just a way to get the recruits hyped up when they're visiting the school. That's really all it is. And if I had to bet one way or the other, based on past history, I would lean towards saying that's all they will ever be. But all right, guys, that does it for us today here on the Glory UGA podcast. I know we had a couple new questions that were sent in this week that we were not able to get to. Paul, off the top of my head, I know we were not able to get to your question. I had it queued up here, but we are running low on time. So instead of just kind of rushing through those questions, we're going to hold them for next week. I promise you we will get to those next week. And I am also very excited to officially announce that next week we will begin the scheme theme month, the month of June on this podcast will be scheme theme. We're going to try our best to keep that Georgia specific. There might be an episode or two where we go more general with the scheme theme stuff, but at least the first couple episodes, we are going to be UGA heavy and talk about some specific things that we do from a schematic standpoint to help you guys be able to better identify some of the things that we are doing on fall Saturdays to our opponents and really just to kind of enhance your enjoyment of the game. I think the deeper that you understand what's going on, the more you enjoy it. At least I know that's the case for me. That's why I still dig into this stuff and research it constantly and go to coaches' clinics because it helps me understand these things on a deeper level, which does enhance my own personal enjoyment of watching the sport. And I think the same will be true for all of you guys out there. So we'll have a lot of fun with that over the next couple of weeks. But thank you for listening. For Curtis, I'm Tyler. And as always... Go dogs! <laughs>